From New York, this is Democracy Now! Look, the houses are collapsing and water is standing here. It has been raining for a week to ten days. You can see there my house has collapsed. A total loss and I could not save anything from it. A climate catastrophe. Pakistan has declared a national emergency after historic floods kill more than a thousand people and leave 30 million displaced. We'll go to Pakistan for the latest and look at how the climate emergency is wreaking havoc across the globe from China to Jackson, Mississippi. Then the Justice Department's released a partially redacted version of the FBI affidavit used to get a search warrant for President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Part of the search sought classified documents that could put the lives of U.S. spies at risk. We'll speak to a former FBI special agent. Then we go to California, where farm workers have just completed a 335-mile march for labor rights. I have been working in the fields for six years. I march because without this law passing, it is difficult for us to exercise our rights. The governor should know that we are essential for our work in the fields. The farm workers are calling on California Governor Gavin Newsom to sign a bill to allow farm workers to vote to unionize by mail. Newsom has threatened to veto the legislation unless amended, but farm workers aren't giving up. We'll speak to the president of the United Farm Workers. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Pakistan has declared a national emergency as massive floods continue to devastate the country. At least 119 people died just over the weekend, bringing the death toll to over 1,000 since June. More than 33 million people have been displaced. Pakistan's top climate official described the flooding as a, quote, serious climate catastrophe. Flood have swept away homes, roads and bridges across Pakistan, where some regions have received 600 percent more rain than usual. This is Pakistan's prime minister, Shabazz Sharif. When the plane was landing just now, I looked down with great concentration. It looked like the angry waves of the river Indus had spread across the whole region. The flood of 2010 was a very huge flood in our history, but I feel that this flood has caused much greater havoc. There is extreme devastation all around. More than 900 people have died. We'll go to Pakistan later in the broadcast. In Mississippi, Governor Tate Reeves has declared a state of emergency after torrential rains are causing the Pearl River to overflow its banks, causing massive flooding. In Mississippi's capital city, Jackson, Mayor Chokoyantar Lumumba on Sunday urged residents in flood zones to pack enough supplies to last for days and to evacuate. Are capable of getting out now. Get out now. Get out as soon as possible. Today, the Pearl River is expected to crest at nearly 36 feet, 10 feet higher than what's normally considered a flood stage. The Justice Department has released a redacted version of the affidavit the FBI used to get a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. The affidavit revealed authorities were concerned Trump still had possession of top-secret documents that could have compromised U.S. intelligence sources and methods. It also revealed the National Archives had recovered 184 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago in January. Twenty-five of those documents were marked top-secret. Some included information intercepted under the 
Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The affidavit went on to state, quote, there is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found, unquote. In related news, a federal judge in Florida who is appointed by Trump has indicated she will agree to his request to authorize a special master to review the documents seized by the FBI. In Ukraine, Russian and Ukrainian forces continue to trade heavy fire around the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, raising fears of a major radiation disaster. Over the weekend, Ukraine accused Russia of using positions near the plant's six nuclear reactors to stage artillery attacks on nearby Ukrainian towns. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry says it shot down a Ukrainian drone near the Zaporizhia plant's nuclear waste enclosure. Russia also accused Ukraine of shelling the site several times, which Ukrainian officials deny. Officials have started handing out iodine tablets to some 400,000 people living near the plant to help protect them from a potential radioactive release. This comes as the U.N.'s International Atomic Energy Agency says a team of experts is on the way to Zaporizhia and will arrive later this week to evaluate the safety and security of Europe's largest nuclear power station. At the United Nations, a month-long meeting to review the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty has ended in failure, after Russia objected to a joint statement from 151 nations because it included a paragraph about its occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. In Libya, at least 32 people died and 159 people were wounded Saturday as rival militias fought in Tripoli. It was the heaviest fighting seen in Libya's capital in two years. The dead included at least 17 civilians. Libya has been in a state of crisis for over a decade after NATO helped topple rebels of the government of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Since February, Libya has had two prime ministers competing for power. Saturday's fighting was between militias with ties to each of the men. The Environmental Protection Agency has moved to reclassify two commonly used chemicals as hazardous substances after a growing body of scientific research linked them to cancer and other health problems. On Friday, the EPA said its move to reclassify PFAS under the federal Superfund law could accelerate cleanup efforts at hundreds of toxic sites across the United States. PFAS are often called forever chemicals because they can take centuries to break down in the environment. They're used in everything from food packaging and cookware to cosmetics, fabrics, and firefighting foam. In humans, PFAS have been linked to a host of dangerous health effects, including liver damage, decreased fertility, asthma, thyroid disease, low infant birth weight, and cancer. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has warned efforts to control inflation will bring pain to many households. Powell spoke in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, on Friday. Reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth. Moreover, there will very likely be some softening of labor market conditions. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. 
progressives, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, have warned Powell's moves will lead the United States into a recession. Reich said, quote, the pain is already being felt across the land. Most Americans aren't getting inflation-adjusted wage increases, which means they're becoming poorer. In New Mexico. A 23-year-old asylum seeker from Brazil has died by suicide while in custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Gasly Vial was being indefinitely detained at the troubled Torrance Detention Center as he awaited his deportation to Brazil. The American Civil Liberties Union said his death was the, quote, result of abhorrent conditions and treatment by ICE and Torrance staff. Torrance is managed by the private prison corporation CoreCivic. Last year, it failed its annual government inspection due to chronic under staffing and unsanitary and unsafe conditions. In Ethiopia, at least seven people were killed Friday, including several children, when government forces attacked a kindergarten in the northern Tigray region. The attack in Tigray's regional capital, Mekele, came as a five-month truce between Ethiopia's military and separatist rebels unraveled, threatening to worsen a humanitarian crisis that's already among the worst in the world. The U.N. says the fighting has left about half of Tigray's six million residents on the brink of famine. Mexico's Truth Commission investigating the 2014 disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa reported Friday six of them were kept alive in a warehouse for days before they were turned over to a local army commander who ordered their execution. Last week, the Truth Commission called the disappearances a state crime. On Friday, hundreds took to the streets of Mexico City, demanding justice for the 43 and Mexico's other disappeared people. This is the father of missing student Hilda Hernandez. We want justice. A lot of evidence points to the fact that the former Attorney General Jesus Morillo obstructed the investigation. Whether by omission or participation, he has to pay. As a mother, I tell you we still feel pain. And this man has never touched his heart. In Argentina, thousands of people took to the streets of Buenos Aires Saturday to defend Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner against allegations of corruption. She's accused of defrauding the state in a scheme to divert public funds during her term as president from 2007 to 2015. The weekend protest came just days after prosecutors called for a 12-year prison sentence and a ban on public office for Kirchner. Police fired tear gas at protesters. At least four people were arrested. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom has threatened to veto a bill that would make it easier for farm workers to cast their ballots in union elections remotely via mail. In a veto statement released Friday, Governor Newsom suggested he's willing to negotiate changes to the bill. The measure is backed by the United Farm Workers, which has vowed to continue fighting to expand voting accessibility and farm workers' unionization efforts. Newsom's veto threat came on the same day. The San Francisco Chronicle reported a wine company he co-founded with billionaire Gordon Getty, purchased a new vineyard in Napa County for $14.5 million. Farm workers have often denounced a chronic lack of protections and unsafe working conditions at California's vineyards. We'll have more on this story with the president of the United Farm Workers later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Pakistan has declared a national emergency as massive floods continue to devastate the country.
At least 119 people died over the weekend, bringing the death toll to over 1,000 since June. More than 33 million people have been displaced. Pakistan's top climate official described the flooding as a, quote, serious climate catastrophe. Floods have swept away homes, roads and bridges across Pakistan, where some regions have received 600 percent more rain than usual. Survivors say they've lost everything in the floods. There is no administration here. The deputy commissioner is doing nothing. Look, the houses are collapsing and water is standing here. It has been raining for a week to 10 days. You can see there my house has collapsed, a total loss, and I could not save anything from it. Pakistan's foreign minister, Bawali Bhutto Zardari, has called on international support to help Pakistan recover from the floods. They're absolutely devastating. I haven't seen any, any uh, destruction or devastation of this scale. I find it very difficult uh, to put into words uh, the phraseologies that we're used to, whether it's monsoon rains or uh, flooding, doesn't quite seem uh, to encapsulate the ongoing devastation and disaster that we're still witnessing. The fact that Pakistan contributes negligible amounts to the overall uh, carbon footprint, but we do, uh, we are devastated by climate disasters such as these time and time again, and we have to adapt uh, within our limited resources in whatever way we can uh, to live to this, live in this new environment. The floods come as the climate emergency continues to wreak havoc across the globe. Europe's confronting its worst drought in 500 years. China's facing an unprecedented heat wave that's dried up rivers and lakes. Here in the United States, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, urged residents Sunday night to evacuate the city as it braces for more flooding. We're joined now by two guests. In London, Assad Raymond is with us, executive director of War on Want lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. And joining us from Islamabad, Pakistan, by phone, is Shamir Baloch. He covers Pakistan for The Guardian. His new piece is titled, People Are Getting Sick, Destitution in Flood-Hit Pakistan. Shamir Baloch, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just describe what's happening in your country? Uh, Shamir Baloch, we're not hearing you. If you could uh, start again. Uh, you hear me right now? I do How's... hear you now. Yeah, actually, things are getting uh, worse with each passing day. And uh, we know, and the Prime Minister of Pakistan has already mentioned it, like the half of Pakistan, more than half of Pakistan and four corners of the Pakistan are underwater. Like the, there is already an uh, international call for Pakistan is called for international help. And from Baluchistan to Sindh province to Khyber Pakhtunkhwa provinces, they all are underwater. And it's quite a climate catastrophe. And uh, Pakistan is suffering so much. And people like in far flung areas, people are uh, the state and the government machineries, they are trying their best to help. Uh, and reach out, but they have lost access to many parts of uh, Pakistan, like in Baluchistan, which covers half of Pakistan, like the road, rail, and the bridges have been wiped out uh, from from this flush flood. And the uh, the only ways to to reach out to those displaced people and the affected people is through helicopters, and the the army has been called on in entire Pakistan for help. 
But again, Pakistan has been going through an economic crisis uh, for the last couple of months, and it makes it harder for Pakistan to, 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 to go for relief and rescue operations across the country. Apart from the, the worst we have seen right now in a couple of weeks, uh, Pakistan is already going through a political crisis after since April when Imran Khan was ousted from power throughout constitutional mean like out of no confidence since then he has been taking on the military and the west and the government like for the current government for orchestrating and conspiring against his government so now he has taken on the government and uh, so it's quite very hard can you talk about the connection between the flooding and climate change Actually, it's quite clear. We have seen in Pakistan in May, I already did a story on it about the heat waves in Pakistan. It was very worst heat waves in May. Just imagine in May, more than 50 degrees Celsius was recorded. And in, in mid-June, at the end of the June, then we had abnormal monsoon. And that have just been going on uh, with some intervals. In August, uh, the, uh, the, cli- the cl- it's a climate crisis. In August, we have seen a snowfall in, in Ziarat, a town which is uh, uh, around not more than 100 kilometers away from Balustan's provincial capital. Just, just seeing snowfall and heat waves in May and snowfall in August and abnormal monsoon, these all are the, the, uh, the climate crisis and the climate catastrophe. And there's already a debate in Pakistan, like Pakistan uh, doesn't like contribute more than 1% to uh, carbon uh, emission. And it's in the receiving end of this uh, uh, climate crisis. I want to turn to some of the voices of more survivors in the floods in Pakistan. We're very worried. Our elders are saying they have not seen such rains and floods in the past 30 to 35 years. This is the first time we have seen such heavy rains. Now we are concerned that, God forbid, this type of heavy rain may continue in the future, because the weather pattern is changing. So we are now really nervous about this. We are really worried. The rain destroyed my house. My livestock were all lost. My fields devastated. Only our lives were saved. Nothing else is left. Thank God. He saved the lives of my children. Now we are at Allah's mercy. My property, my house, everything was flooded. So we took shelter on the roof of a government school for three days and three nights. Around 200 people with kids, we sat on the roof for three days. When the water receded a little, we dragged the kids out of the mud and walked for two days until we arrived at a safe place. Voices of survivors. Um, uh, Shamir Baloch, I know you have to leave. I just want to ask you, Al Jazeera says Pakistan is ranked eighth among countries most vulnerable to climate crisis, despite contributing less than 1 percent to global carbon emissions, according to the Climate Change Risk Index of 2021. The significance of this and what you feel needs to be done, the global response right now. Uh, I think we have lost Shamir Baloch, uh, who was 
speaking to us from Islamabad. But, you know, I'm going to put this question to our other guest, Assad Rayman, executive director of War on Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition, because it's such a critical one. And it's not only about Pakistan, but it's about who contributes the most to the climate catastrophe and who feels the effects of it the most. Uh, this is not only in Pakistan, but around the world. And what global responsibility actually means, Assad? Uh, good afternoon, uh, Amy, or oh, good morning there. Um, well, I mean, first of all, as we heard from Shamir, you know, that the scale of the devastation that's affected uh, Pakistan uh, is incredible. And, and we often look at these catastrophes in isolation. If we cast our minds back, we could be talking about heat waves and floods in Pakistan in 2010, 11, 12, 14, 15. It's going literally every single year. And of course, the earth is out of balance, just over one degree warming. And no matter what we do, that is now irreversible. What we can do is, of course, stop it getting much, much worse. And these heat waves and floods that we're seeing playing out all around the world um, are now between 30 to 100 times more likely because of the climate crisis. And they're happening sooner each year. They're happening more extreme. And, of course, they're lasting longer. So how do people recover from this never-ending crisis? And when we look at Pakistan, where the World Food Programme already estimates that 70% of Pakistan's population don't have access to proper nutrition. Once again, it's the poorest, those who have done the least, who are seeing their lives and livelihoods being destroyed. And uh, um, as Samir and yourself said, you know, Pakistan, like many countries in the global south, are responsible for a negligible amount of global emissions, about 1%. But they are stuck in a toxic interplay between a climate catastrophe that they're not responsible for, increasing hunger, structural inequality, and a rigged economic system that has literally left the poor hanging by a thread. And many states absolutely overwhelmed. And, you know, the situation is going to get much, much worse. And, you know, for Pakistan, which is a country where you know, it has the largest amount of glaciers, that's 7,000 glaciers. As these glaciers begin to melt, these glacial lakes are going to overflow. And um, it's already estimated that two-thirds of these glaciers will be lost. And whilst we today we see floods, when these glaciers are gone, the real question is going to be, where is the fresh water that provides, not just for the people of Pakistan, but for hundreds of millions of people across the Indian subcontinent. Now, when we talk about, you know, the reality of, um, this crisis and the warnings have been given to us, right? The, the dangers of breaching the one and a half degree guardrail are going to be critical, that these extreme weather events are going to spiral out of control. And we've told that we have to half global emissions. So rich countries really need to be cutting their emissions as close to zero by 2030 as possible so that the rest of the world does have a little bit more space, those who are the least responsible. But currently we're heading to a warming of just over 2.7 degrees at the best. And we've seen rich countries ramping up a massive new wave of fossil fuels from the US to the UK, Canada, Australia to the EU. It's literally a bonanza for fossil fuel companies who, having made $2 trillion in profit over the last three decades, are now openly betting they can make trillions more in profit. This is, as the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, said, this is the reality of climate apartheid. The rich are going to use their wealth to try and seek safety and literally leave the poor to burn. You know, talking about the poorest areas in Pakistan alone, Balochistan has been hit the hardest. It's the largest and most impoverished of the provinces. Um, and I wanted to 
highlight what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted earlier this month. He said, We stand by Pakistan in hard times and offer our support to flood victims. In addition to $100,000 in immediate relief, the U.S. announced $1 million to build resilience against natural disasters. And we continue to work together to mitigate future impacts of the climate crisis. Your response, Asad Raymond? Uh, it's 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 beyond laughable. It's criminal. Look, the poor in the world are hanging by a thread. And, you know, there was a promise made in 2009, led by the United States, uh, for $100 billion in climate finance. Thirteen years later, that has not been met. And the scale of what is now needed is estimated in the trillions. Look, rich countries are simply turning their back on the majority of the world. You know, for the U.S. to announce a, a million dollars, for the U.K. to announce one and a half million dollars. Look, the reality is we're, we're seeing, you know, a climate crisis which is overwhelming the ability of states in the global south to be able to respond. And as I said, it's not just one crisis. It's a crisis of acute hunger. It's a crisis of structural inequality, of poverty and injustice. And these are all leading to a situation where the question is for the majority of the people, is life simply going to be possible? And unfortunately, the reality, as we've seen at these climate summits, as we saw in Glasgow last year, and they're likely we're going to see in Sharm el-Sheikh in the, uh, the COP in, uh, in, in, in November, is rich countries saying we will not be liable for the very damages that our economies are causing, and they will turn their backs on the poor. The Climate Policy Initiative earlier this month, um, releasing that report that showed Africa is getting just 12 percent of the finance it needs to manage the impact of climate change, which, of course, as we know, um, it didn't cause. Uh, the report noting African countries need a quarter of a trillion dollars annually to move to renewable energy and address the effects of climate change. But funding in 2020 was just $29.5 billion, your response, Asad? Yeah, it's a drop in the ocean. And, 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 and increasingly, even the, the amount of money that is given, you know, is often tied to loans. Uh, so it's more debt creating. And we know that many countries in the global south now are overwhelmed by debt. Look, Pakistan, going, just going back to Pakistan, you know, it's, a, it's estimated that it's about to pay out $6.5 billion in debt repayments over the next three years. It's debt is running in the in the scale of hundreds of billions. We saw what happened in Sri Lanka, where with with debt repayments and the government simply telling people not to eat or to eat less food. Um, the reality is, this is a moment of permanent and multiple crisis. All expand, uh, uh, fueling each other and fueling these injustices. What we really need right now is the richest countries in the world to actually live up to their responsibility. Look, there's, there's no shortage of money. We've seen that. Just looking at the amount of wealth that is extracted from the global south, the fact that the richest billionaires saw their wealth increase by a trillion or over a trillion dollars just in the last year alone. What we need now is something like a global Green New Deal, a new Marshall Plan, the richest countries to actually provide the finance that is needed uh, uh, to the global south, not only to deal with the climate impacts, but not only to de deal with the, their ability to be able to adapt to this crisis, and of course that's limited in itself, but also for rich countries to actually cut their emissions. You can't simply keep expanding fossil fuels and you can't simply watch the rest of the world burn. And, you know, it's not just Pakistan, it's not just China. You know, we're seeing in the Horn of Africa at this very moment 
fifth consecutive year of drought, the longest for 40 years. Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia estimated up to 15 million people face acute hunger. We're now in the era of climate famines. We either have to stop this and, and actually begin to address it, or literally we are going to see a world where for the majority of people, life is simply going to be impossible. And I wanted to ask you about geoengineering um, <clears throat> and the whole issue of um, China deploying cloud-seeding airplanes over drought-stricken parts of the country, as hundreds of millions of people endure China's longest heat wave on record. Uh, China's Ministry of Water Resources ordering planes to drop silver iodide into the clouds over Hubei province, where prolonged heat has damaged crops and led parts of the Yangtze River to run dry. Asad. Yeah, what we're seeing is— you know, now increasingly desperate, mad, and and simply dangerous uh, experiments uh, with geoengineering. So the so this basically says, you know, we can carry on polluting, and then somehow we'll find a technological answer to deal with these impacts. There isn't one. We actually don't know what happens if we try and uh, uh, intervene in very very delicate ecosystems that exist. You know, the humanity's history all around the world over the last few hundred thousand years has been when we've had a stable environment. That environment is no longer stable. Stable. Um, so when it's no longer stable, surely the most important thing is to stop fueling the crisis rather than thinking that some technological answer is going to be able to address this. And it's not just China. We're seeing now increasingly more and more money being poured into sort of idea of techno fixes and we've seen mad ideas such as putting you know mirrors into the into the into the atmosphere to deflect the heat of the sun we've seen mad ideas about pouring more iron filings into the oceans all of these things i mean it's 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 like you know I, I mean, it's it's beyond like uh, fearful. It's uh, sometimes I'm I'm literally astounded that these ideas. I've got so much traction and they're getting traction because people refuse to deal with what is the core of this problem. And the core of the problem is we have a broken energy system dominated by fossil fuel companies and we have a broken food system dominated by industrial agribusiness. If we stop those two and stop deforestation, we can actually create a world which is not just cleaner and fairer, will cut emissions, but actually allow people to be able to live with dignity. I want to ask you about uh, part of the IRA, uh, the climate bill that was signed in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, about CCS, carbon capture and storage, funded by that bill. Look, you know, carbon capture and storage is the idea that somehow we can carry on polluting and then we can somehow capture the carbon from fossil fuels and from from the industrial processes and bury it into the ground now all the experiments that have ever happened have all shown that there is nothing to the scale of what is needed the only possible uh, example that may work requires a landmass potentially uh, three times the size of the indian subcontinent it's just simply madness we what we're doing is uh, it, it's it's like your house being on fire and then you're having a conversation about well in the future should we put our should we put, what color should we paint our fire doors no the first thing to do is put out the fire 
Let's focus on doing that. We know what needs to be done. We can end our addiction to fossil fuels. We can invest in clean, renewable energy, and we can tackle energy poverty. That's what is needed. And unfortunately, this shows the influence of the fossil fuel industry that simply want to continue business as usual and are banking on really risky, dangerous, and frankly, catastrophic uh, uh, policy uh, initiatives that will not deliver the emissions needed within the timescale that we need. We need to cut emissions now, this decade, not there in the future, not try and suck carbon out of the atmosphere in 50 years' time or 70 years' time. We need to act now while we still can. Uh, finally, I want to ask you, here in Mississippi, in the United States, the uh, capital city, Jackson, Mayor Chocoanta Lumumba, urge residents in flood zones to pack enough supplies for days and to evacuate if they can. I've already received calls from individuals wondering or questioning whether they should get out now. If you are capable of getting out now, get out now. Get out as soon as possible. So I want to thank you both for being with us. Um, thank you so much to Assad Raymond. Final words, Assad? Look, the poor are hanging by a thread, and the richest countries have turned their back. It's now up to us as ordinary people. It's up to us to build our movements in the global north, hold our governments to account, hold our corporations to account. Many people are facing a cost of living crisis. Many people, of course, are facing these climate impacts. And many people already face an existing crisis of structural inequality. All of these can be resolved. We know what needs to be done. What we lack is the political will of our government and political leaders. We have to change that. Assad Raymond, executive director of War on Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. And I also want to thank um, Shamir Baloch, who joined us from Islamabad, Pakistan. Coming up, we speak to a former FBI special agent, the Justice Department releasing a partially redacted version of the FBI affidavit used to get a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. What does it say? Stay with us. singer Wahab Ali Bhakti. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department's released a redacted version of the affidavit the FBI used to get a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. 
The affidavit revealed authorities were concerned Trump still had possession of top-secret documents that could have compromised U.S. intelligence sources and methods. It also revealed the National Archives had recovered 184 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago in January. Twenty-five of those documents were marked top secret. Some included information intercepted under FISA. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The affidavit went on to state, quote, there's also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found, unquote. In related news, a federal judge in Florida who is appointed by Trump has indicated she'll agree to his request to authorize a special master to review the documents seized by the FBI. For more, we go to Mike German, former FBI special agent who now serves as a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. His recent co-authored report for the Brennan Center is focusing the FBI. His book, Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Welcome back to Democracy. Now, Mike, why don't you first lay out what you felt were the most significant revelations in this heavily redacted affidavit, which was released on Friday? Thanks for having me. And, and I think that's the key point. This, is, this affidavit is heavily redacted, so there's still more we don't know than what we do know. But I think it was, it was very wise of the judge to to uh, demand that there be some release, because what the document shows is, is that the FBI, in this case, has followed a very cautious, restrained, and methodological approach uh, that followed its rules. Right? The FBI has uh, guidelines that instruct its agents how to use their authorities, and it requires the use of the least intrusive means. And what you see in the affidavit is a step-by-step -step process where, first, the National Archives negotiated with the former president and his attorneys attempting to get these documents back. Once they received some documents and recognized that there were classified documents among them, they took the next step and, again, asked the, the, uh, the president's representatives to provide more documents. And uh, finally, they went to, to a grand jury subpoena and made very clear that the documents that remained at Mar-a-Lago were not being uh, protected in the way that, that the law required. So all of this activity took place over the course of more than a year before the search uh, began. And even the way the search was conducted uh, was very restrained. And you know, we don't have to look far uh, just earlier, I think a week earlier, uh, in a similar national security investigation in Florida, uh, we saw a armed raid of uh, black liberation groups as part of what the FBI claims is a national security matter involving Russian interference with the election. Uh, but you saw armed agents, you saw people being handcuffed at these, at these locations where uh, the African people's uh, 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 Socialist Party uh, were, were the subjects of those searches when they're not actually charged with any crime. And that kind of aggressive approach is what we've seen since 9-11, this very militaristic law enforcement approach to these matters. So seeing that, that in this, in the case involving former President Trump, the Justice Department and the FBI followed their guidelines, took, took very restrained steps, increasingly getting closer to what they needed to do, which 
the primary mission is to protect the documents that, that remain beyond government control. And I want to encourage people to go to democracynow.org to see our interview with Amali Eshetela, who described exactly what happened to him. He's actually in St. Louis, though the places in Florida were raided, too, chairman of the U.S.-based Africa People's Socialist Party. Um, so, Mike German, the issue of revealing um, the— uh, what did The New York Times' full banner headline say? U.S. feared Trump files put spies at risk. Um, talk about what exactly that means. Uh, did it reveal names? Uh, again, we, we don't know exactly what's in it, but we do know that some of the documents had markings indicating that some of the material was coming from human sources. And that's always the, the most closely held information. Uh, some of the information had markings indicating that the, it, the, it was the originator control document, which means that the agency that uh, that produced this document wanted to make sure that agency had control over how uh, the information was disseminated. So this is very the, some of the most sensitive materials that that uh, the government has. And to be clear, overclassification has been a problem in the government. So it's not as if the the markings are. Uh, the end of the story, and it, the primary goal is is recovering the documents and protecting them, and, and then you can do a damage assessment to see uh, how you can try to protect those assets. Um, and you know, to the extent there are prosecutions, either for mishandling classified information or, uh, as you suggested in the intro, obstruction uh, in in the attempts and to recover it. And let's talk about that obstruction, uh, the significance of obstruction, because people will have been jailed for taking classified information, and also people have simply been warned if it was believed that they didn't understand what they were doing. But when they are asked to return it, and explain now what was returned and what wasn't, and the fact that it may well be that Trump's lawyer lied in June, saying everything classified has been returned— Exactly. And what's always difficult in an espionage investigation is that you, the government is trying to protect the information first and foremost. So to have a trial where that information is in question, of course, risks exposing it. So often the government will look for other methods, other uh, violations that they can charge. And one of the ones we see most often is false statements. So all they need is for somebody to have made a false statement during this year-long negotiation or uh, also mentioned in the affidavit were uh, laws about the, the retention of federal documents. So, you know, these are the types of statutes that often get charged, even though they're secondary to the primary concern of espionage because they're easier to make a case in court without exposed, further exposing the classified records. So can you talk more about your piece focusing the FBI, in which you said the real problem is not that the FBI authorities are too narrow, but rather that they're overbroad and untethered to evidence of wrongdoing? Uh, so unfortunately, the, the type of restraint and, and the cautious approach that we see uh, in, the, in the case regarding the documents at, at Mar-a-Lago isn't how the FBI uh, typically uh, operates in the national security arena, particularly, and the counterterrorism arena, where they tend to be very aggressive 
And because the FBI's rules since 9-11 governing their investigations are so broad, they don't need actual evidence of criminality before they can start these investigations. And what we've seen, and of course, your coverage has demonstrated amply, that they're often using these authorities not against groups who they have evidence or engaged in violent criminal activities or terrorism, but uh, groups that they disagree with. So uh, often environmentalists, uh, civil rights organizations and black liberation organizations, uh, any, any type of organization seeking social change uh, tends to get targeted because they have the broad authority to do that. So when people wonder how was it that the FBI missed uh, an attack planned in plain sight, uh, on January 6th, it's because they spend so much time targeting these other groups where it's not based on evidence, it's based on bias. So narrowing their authorities to where they have to focus the way they did in the Mar-a-Lago search, where they actually demonstrate uh, uh, evidence of crimes in order to justify the next step in an investigation, I think will make them far more effective and reduce the amount of abuse of these authorities. And finally, we have 30 seconds. FBI agents reportedly receiving threats from pro-Trump supporters. How serious are these threats? What kind of response is warranted? Uh, the threats are serious, uh, the, and they've been persistent. I mean, one of the things that's bothered me as a former agent uh, over the course of the Trump administration is how Trump was able to cultivate a, uh, a, a far-right militant movement at the same time he was cultivating uh, a, a law enforcement audience and bringing them together in a way that, that there seemed to be some amity between when these groups have always attacked law enforcement. I mean, people forget, but the Oklahoma City attack was directly against federal law enforcement. So uh, for law enforcement not to recognize these individuals are a threat to them personally and their colleagues uh, is a mistake. And hopefully this will direct some of that activity to make sure they're focusing on these groups. Mike German, I want to thank you for being with us, fellow at the Brennan Center of Justice at New York University Law School, former FBI special agent. We'll link to your report focusing the FBI. Uh, Mike German's book, Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Coming up, farm workers in California calling on Gavin Newsom to sign a bill to allow farm workers to vote to unionize by mail. Newsom's threatening to veto the bill unless amended. Stay with us. Remember asking both my mom and dad Why we never travel to exotic lands We only ever really visit friends Nothing to tell when the summer ends We never really went buying clothes Folks were passing on the stuff in plenty loads New shoes once a year and then Out to play ball so we could ruin them Mama said that it was okay Mama said that it was quite alright I kind of people had a Don't get me wrong, I didn't have it bad 
loving from my mom and dad But I don't think they really understood When I said that I wanted to deal in Hollywood I told them I'd be singing on TV Mama Said by Lucas Graham, or for our TV audience with visuals from last week's victorious strike at American University. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. California Governor Gavin Newsom's threatened to veto a bill that would make it easier for farm workers to cast their ballots in union elections by mail. Newsom made the announcement Friday as hundreds of farm workers concluded a 335-mile, 24-day march to Sacramento to pressure Newsom to support the bill. Participants in the march included Adelia Garcia of the group Lideras Campesinas and the farm worker Virginia Modenado. I have been working in the fields for six years. I marched because without this law passing, it is difficult for us to exercise our rights. The governor should know that we are essential for our work in the fields. Good afternoon. My name is Audelia Garcia, and I represent Líderes Campesinas in California and Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. We defend the rights of farm workers. We want farm workers and agricultural workers to have the same rights. March was organized in part by the United Farm Workers. The labor union's planning to begin a 24-hour vigil today in Sacramento to pressure the governor to sign the legislation. Newsom has not ruled out signing a revised version of the bill, but his office said, quote, we cannot support an untested mail-in election process that lacks critical provisions to protect the integrity of the election. The governor announced the veto— on Friday, the same day, the wine company he co-founded with the billionaire Gordon Getty announced it had just purchased a $14.5 million vineyard in Napa County. We're joined now by two guests. Teresa Romero is president of the United Farm Workers, and Irene de Barayuca is the director of operations and communications for Lideras Campesinas, or Farm Worker Leaders, which works with female farm workers. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Irene, let's begin with you. If you can talk about why um, so many hundreds of people, led by farm workers, marched for hundreds of miles to the California capital, what this bill is uh, that you're demanding be passed. Hello, good morning, Amy, and thank you for having me. And uh, definitely, um, after the, the past two years of the, this pandemic, right, where farm workers were deemed essential, um, many of the issues uh, that farm workers have faced for many years have been brought to light at a, at a global, global level. And so many of the farm workers also understand that their, their voice means uh, so much. They need to lift their voices. And so this march, what it represents is sort of this this ongoing um, fight um, to 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 obtain the rights that that they've never had. I mean, they are some of the most um, at risk workers. Uh, they risk injury more than any other uh, labor sector. Uh, they are exposed to pesticides, to sexual assault, to uh, wage theft, all sorts of abuses that one cannot imagine. And so, what this march meant was actually getting to that point where they are, um, they have access to these rights, the rights to freely organize, like nurses do, like teachers do, like all other sectors of, uh, of, our, of our labor, right? This is a, a $50 billion industry that the agricultural workers contribute to in California alone. And so uh, what it represents is basically a, 
opening that door to be able to organize freely, more freely, and uh, and exercise their rights. We're also joined by Teresa Romero, who is president of the United Farm Workers. Um, so you arrive um, in Sacramento, the capital, with hundreds of farm workers, and at the same time, you get the message from the governor that he will not sign this legislation. The legislature will pass it, but he won't sign it. He vetoed it last year, unless it's amended. And then, at just about the same time, the Sacramento Chronicle releases this piece on uh, his company buying up another um, uh, another um, uh, vineyard in Napa. Vineyard. The significance of this, Teresa. You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, it, it was a big confusion because then he said that he had not indicated he was not going to sign it. We have been in communication with his office since we started the march. Like you said, we marched 335 miles. On Friday, we had thousands of people join us at the uh, um, Capitol. And what we want to make sure is that farm workers have the ability to vote for union representation uh, in a safe way. Uh, right now, if farm workers organize, they're fired. They're deported. They have been deported. In, uh, there is an attorney that is known from calling immigration, so the farm workers are deported. Uh, farm workers have worked from the pandemic through the pandemic, through high temperatures, through pesticides, through uh, fires, and it is time that we treat them as the essential workers that they really are. I mean, talk about the heat wave. The, just your marching alone through the Central Valley in California, this many-day march, the dedication that it took. Um, but can you also link—I mean, on the one hand, I think there was probably the embarrassment of it coming out about his vineyard, another vineyard purchased, at the same time as he's yeah. saying um, uh, he wants to amend this. Are you in negotiations? And what do you say to a governor who succeeded in defeating a recall? Many of the people who voted for him, to keep him, voted by mail. So many people, and overwhelmingly, I think, Democrat, use the mail in regular elections. What's your response to um, limiting it when it comes to the United Farm Workers voting for, you know, unionization by mail? And why mail is so important to you? You know, it is the double standards. Uh, what works for him, he doesn't seem to believe that it works for farm workers. Farm workers, uh, right now, the only way that they can vote for union representation is at the uh, employer's premises. And, um, you know, the supervisors are there, the foremen are there. In many cases, they have, quote-unquote, security. Uh, so it is very intimidating for farm workers. A lot of them are undocumented, so they prefer not to show up. So we want to uh, Im uh, improve participation. We want we want to give them the options of voting for union representation. If they do it from the comfort of their own home, and then they either deliver the ballot directly, if that's what they want, or mail it, they're safe from ret retaliation because nobody is going to know, even if they voted. And we had farm workers joined us in this 24-day march who work for union companies, but they're doing it because they know what uh, other farm workers go through and how intimidating. Just think about it. So in many cases, you have several family members working in the same farm. If one of them starts organizing 
or asking for their rights, then not only that person is uh, fired, but the entire family members are fired. So they, they, they risk a lot just saying that they want union representation. Hmm. Um, Irene de Barikua, uh, can you talk about the conditions on the ground uh, even further that farm workers face, and particularly women? Yes. Um, so what, what uh, Lideres Campesinas um, is, we're composed of uh, women farm worker leaders, uh, victim advocates. And so um, usually what we see is a tremendous fear of women that face uh, sexual assault, uh, harassment in the field, and, and they're scared to report. And as Teresa mentions, uh, uh, many times the retaliation is a uh, is, is the biggest fear and deportation, right? So many of the women uh, stay quiet. Uh, they don't say anything. Uh, they they may be getting um, harassed by supervisors, uh, co-workers. And many times, um, even the men that witness this have come to us to report these things, but but they are also fearful themselves of, um, of getting in trouble, of getting fired, of losing their jobs. Uh, we see a lot of wage theft claims uh, many of these people don't know how to go through these processes, right? They don't have uh, uh, language access, uh, technology at times to be able to to make reports. And so many times Kalosha has, has brought to the attention that there, there's a lot of uh, advocates maybe that speak of uh, complaints and such, but that the written official complaints are not in their in their system. And so that's a that's a very big problem is very low reporting of of, uh, of uh, what's happening in the fields. Uh, we see a lot of exposure to, to pesticides. There, there's pesticides being sprayed at the time that people are working out there when um, that, that should be, there should be an alert system, right? People should not be working for several, uh, several hours when uh, pesticides are being sprayed. And so um, definitely various uh, things also related to the heat, the fires, uh, there's there's evacuation zones where farm workers are actually being brought in to finish the harvest, especially in places where Newsom has a, a winery um, in Sonoma County, right Napa, and um, and, and definitely uh, many many of these. These issues are not being addressed the way that they should. Today, Senator Romero, we just have 30 seconds. Uh, are you negotiating um, behind the scenes with the governor? And is it possible? I mean, I think all legislation has to be on his desk, what, by September 1st, that it could happen this term? It, it, everything is possible. We have negotiated our bill with some of the amendments that the 90 percent of, of what the governor wanted, we included in the bill. And it is being voted today in the Senate, and it is going to go to the Assembly. There is still a possibility, but it is going to pass the Senate, it's going to pass the Assembly, and it's going to be 100 percent up to him to sign it. Teresa Romero, I want to thank you for being with us, President of the United Farm Workers, and Irene de Baraikua of Lideras Campesinas, which works with female farm workers. That does it for our show. In breaking news, NASA has scrubbed its planned launch of its new moon rocket, the Space Launch System, which was scheduled to lift off from Florida's Kennedy Space Center this morning. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for people and culture manager. Check democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.